0: Our hearts. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Pastor. And I invite you to give your attention to God's word found in Luke chapter 9, where we come to verse 18. Luke chapter 9, beginning with verse 18 in this gospel narrative where the great Position is revealed to us by the beloved physician, Luke, who, in the course of time, came to believe in the Lord Jesus under the ministry of the Apostle Paul, and joined that missionary effort that the apostle was undertaking, and sought to record the life of the Lord Christ. And so the doctor indeed has good news. Luke chapter 9, beginning with verse 18. Let's hear the good news. This is the very word of God. Now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him. And he asked them, who do the crowds say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist. But others say, Elijah. And others, that one of the prophets of old is risen. Then he said to them, but who do you? Say that I am. And Peter answered, the Christ of God. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And may the Lord bless his word. for the grass withers the flower fades, the word of the Lord stands forever, and this is the word that by the gospel is preached to you. Amen. Remember your objective. I recall how a cousin of mine talked about his exploits in the South Pacific in World War II and how his commander had told him that on more than one occasion. As a part of a Marine Raider Battalion, they had to remember what their mission was. Remember your objective. As I was reading this past week about some Civil War exploits, I couldn't help but think of him. For at least on one occasion, in the middle of a battle, as the Southern Army was supposed to remember its objective, the commander was uh, disillusioned as he saw a number of them turn and run from the enemy in, uh, in fear. And uh, the general yelled at one of the soldiers and said, Son, what's the matter with you? Don't you love your country? And he said, Yes, sir, I do, but I'm trying to get back to it just as quick as I can. <laughs> Sometimes we forget the objective. In this event, which happened in the course of the life of the ministry of the Lord Jesus, after the disciples had witnessed wondrous miracles, after they had heard the Lord Jesus teach, after he had turned them loose to do ministry on their own, to experience on-the-job training, he came to this place where he is praying alone, and then they are alongside him. There's a lesson in that first part of verse 18, as he was praying alone, remember the Lord Jesus, who is uniquely God, the son, saw it as a necessary thing to spend time with his father in prayer. So we must also depend upon our father in prayer as we seek him in the name of the Lord Jesus. Prayer is necessary. As the old Puritan said, if you live without prayer in this life, you live without God in this life. Prayer is necessary. The disciples being with him. He makes this into a teaching opportunity. You know, there's so many times I wondered why he didn't say, go away. But he didn't. He loved them. Who do the crowds say that I am? You might ask yourself, what prompts a question like this? Is Jesus really concerned about how he's holding out there? Of course not. As we read all the text, we understand he has a purpose. He's asking a general question because he wants to get to a specific question that will force them to answer for not the crowds, but for themselves. But in the meantime, who do people say that I am? And we see in the response that as it was the case then, it continues to be now. That opinions with regard to the identity of the Lord Jesus vary wildly. But they're not all equally valid. You know, these are strange times. Some of us remember in school that we learned something called the law of non-contradiction. Now, I'm sure I can't state it as accurately as many of you could. But I do know this, at least it's said, that something can't be A and non-A at the same time. Did I get that close to our philosophy major here on the front row? You know, something can't be a rock and not a rock at the same time. This can't be a cup of water and not a cup of water at the same time. That's what we learn. Our culture has rejected that notion. It doesn't bother people in the slightest now to hold contradictory ideas in their heads. You might have somebody who says, oh yes, I believe Jesus was Lord. And then they'll turn right around and say, but I believe that what Muhammad said was valid too. We live in this eclectic age where people have these strange, contradictory ideas and we hold them in our heads without even giving it a serious thought. There are wildly varying views as to the identity of the Lord Jesus, but there also were varying views in Isaiah 53, which is a prophecy concerning the Lord Jesus, is as clear as a bell, as if... Isaiah were writing as a news correspondent on the spot, witnessing and watching the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus. He was despised and rejected by men. And we can stop there and we have a commentary on the whole history of humanity from beginning to end. That in spite of all the evidence to the contrary, there is this tendency to reject him. And not just reject him, but despise him. He was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. That's the commentary that Isaiah offers to the people in his day, 700 years before Jesus lived. It is the commentary that was relevant at the time that Jesus lived and it continues to be today. That in spite of all of the testimony that we have from Moses and the prophets, And from all of those who have trusted in him down through the long ages, we continue to despise him and reject him, and we do not esteem him. It is important to remember that Peter, the apostle, in the latter stages of his life, who may well have been writing within days of his own death in his second epistle, says, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Peter, as if he's wanting to bequeath to us this truth that he and the others had held on to so tenaciously that they were willing to go to their deaths because they believed it. So, said, you know, we didn't believe these stories because the story itself was compelling. We believed this because it actually happened. We were there. We witnessed it. We experienced it. We tried to convey to you and have conveyed to you what we knew ourselves. We were eyewitnesses of his majesty. They weren't telling us about what somebody else told them. They relayed to us what they themselves saw and experienced and heard. Down in verse 19 of that Second Peter 1. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. To which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place. Until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. This prophetic word. Words which were... Conveyed ages before Jesus ever came to be, predicting his life, his suffering, his death, his resurrection, his glorious return. Things which prophets proclaim. That hasn't happened with regard to others. We think of the great exploits of individuals through history. Whether you want to think of a Napoleon Bonaparte or George Washington. Yes, they came on the scene and we remember them from history, but we don't have predictions regarding what they were going to perform as we do with the Lord Jesus. It is an extraordinary record. And Peter makes appeal to that. In this world that is so dark where it seems as if there is such a vacuum and such a lack of truth. How do you not sense that when you watch things or read them? How that we have all of these varying notions and ideas and opinions, and yet there still seems to be this great vacuum. And you're wondering, who's going to say what really is truth? We have truth. We have God's Word. It's shining like a lamp in a dark place. Those who read it, and the Holy Spirit removes the blinders and opens our eyes to the truthfulness of the Word, it is like that lamp shining in a dark place. You know, I watched the election now beginning to unfold. Yesterday, I saw a photograph I took back in 2010. My brother had taken me to a piece of property up at the head of Ball Creek. In case you don't know where that is, that's right off of crabtree. (laughs) It's before you get to Betsy's Gap. We were out there in the middle of this field, and there was an old uh, automobile... Couldn't even tell you now what it was. It was a 1940 something out there in the middle of the field, and where the engine should have been in the hood, there was a there was a huge tree that had grown up through that through that hood. And I thought, boy, this would be this would be one of those pictures, you know, that you could you could post on social media, and it says, uh, "Here I am, still waiting for my wife to come out of Target." <laughs> I just had to throw that in, honey. I'm sorry. (laughs) But when I saw that picture yesterday, that wasn't the case. She's not like that at all. But when I saw that yesterday, I thought, you know, maybe an appropriate moniker would be, here I am still waiting for that candidate who will do what needs to be done. We're waiting always, aren't we? Everybody disappoints us. We vote for this leader. We vote for that one. And even the ones that do pretty good, they still don't do everything that needs to be done. There's this continual disappointment, except with regard to Christ. Why do we not get it through our thick heads that in this vast sea of people who are always vying for that elevated position, promising to do this or that, there's only one who ultimately delivers and who does altogether what is good. Why is it that we are so slow to believe, even though all of this prophetic word is ours, like a light shining in the darkness? In verse 20 of, first, of Second Peter 1, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. They weren't just being creative. They weren't making this stuff up. The Holy Spirit enabled them. Verse twenty one. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of men, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. The word for carried along is ferreo the word from which we get the word ferry. I remember years ago my dad took us on a vacation to the Outer Banks of North Carolina. That's a long way. It's like five hundred miles from where we live. North Carolina is a long state, and when you're a kid riding in the back of the car, it's a really long state. <laughs> And I remember us getting down there and we pulled our car up on a boat. I thought, man, this is something. And there we were on this ferry which carried us from one place to the other so that we could get off and be in that new location. That's what the Holy Spirit did for these men of old. He carried them so that they wrote the things that He desired them to write. That's the commentary on how Scripture came to be. And thus we know about... The Lord Jesus. So, in offering these opinions, the prevailing one seems to be that he was John the Baptist. How they had this notion, I don't know. John the Baptist, of course, had come. He had preached. He had ministered, and he had been executed because he dared speak truth to power. He was imprisoned, and then on a whim, he was beheaded. Now, people who knew things would have known that John the Baptist saw Jesus, spoke concerning him the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world and would have known that John actually baptized him. So there had to be a distinction between the two people. But in this muddle-up madness that is the human mind, people were willing to say, oh, there's John the Baptist, one of those contradictory opinions. Yet that seems to have been the prevailing one. And those that didn't say that, oh, by the way, he's Elijah. Now, you tell me, who in scripture we have who died and then who came back as themselves other than Jesus. There's no precedent for that at all. And yet they were willing to say it because I suppose somebody somebody somewhere came up with the idea. You know, you ever been sitting in a seafood restaurant and they uh, bring you a plate of oysters? You ever wonder who the first person was that said, I think I'm going to crack that open and Eat what's inside of it. <laughs> Who did that? Who was it that was the first one to say, you know, I think he's John the Baptist? And somebody else said, yeah, yeah, that sounds good to me too. That's the commentary on our culture. College professors. Media influencers. I think, and they say it so compellingly, and they've got all kinds of charisma, and they They really sound like they know what they're talking about. And the whole world goes, yeah, yeah, that must be true. I believe what he believes. Not one shred of evidence to back it up, but because it is offered so compelling. After all, he has a Ph.D. from Harvard or Yale. I'm not taking any prisoners. I'll pick on all of them. Here we are, willing to go running off, believing, whatever it is. But all those opinions, while they vary, are not equally valid. There is such thing as truth. And so, the opinions are off. Elijah, or perhaps one of the other prophets, is risen. I don't know. But then the question comes, who do you say that I am? Sooner or later, this question has to be driven home. It's not a matter of discerning just what public opinion is. After all, we've got all kinds of pollsters, even in our day, doing that footwork for us. But the real question is, who do you say that he is? And he drives the question home. He asks all of them. The word you is in the plural. If it were translated literally, it would be y'all. Who do y'all say that I am? <laughs> Peter answers, as he seems to, repeatedly throughout the gospel narratives, answers for all of them. The Christ of God or the fuller answer that we have in Matthew 16. You are Christ, the son of the living God. Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one, the one who is foretold in the Old Testament. The fulfillment of all of that prophecy is right here in front of us. Peter confesses that. He has a proper understanding of the Lord's identity because he had lots of information at this point to evaluate. He had seen the Lord Jesus demonstrate his power. He had seen the validity behind the claim. I mean, not only were the sick healed, but even the dead had been raised to life. He had even stilled a storm. He had fed thousands with just a few pieces of bread and a few fish. By the way, somebody asked after the sermon about the loaves of the fish, were the fish cooked? Hey, the bread was baked. Sure, the fish were cooked. Or at least they were edible. It's not like he gave them raw dough To go with the sushi He had done all that They had seen it Peter was just simply willing to admit the obvious And so we too are forced To weigh the evidence And we can take the position That many do in our culture Believe what you want to Doesn't really matter Son of God, not the Son of God he was a great teacher. You know, C.S. Lewis cut the chase and he said, you don't have that option. You don't have the option to saying he was merely a good teacher. What good teacher would accept worship from people when they come and offer? Imagine if someone instructing in front of a classroom and a whiteboard and they're writing, and a student comes forward and bows down on the ground and says, oh, how wonderful you are. The good teacher would say, get up from there. Jesus accepted worship. By the way, Do you realize that Jesus never apologized for anything? We have no record of him ever saying, Oh, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to do that. Now, anyone else has a virtue to say, I'm sorry, to apologize. We have to do it as parents, as spouses, as friends. Because we all do wrong, it's necessary to apologize. Jesus never apologized because he never needed to. What kind of good teacher would never apologize? No, C.S. Lewis You know, say it correctly. He's either a liar and a lunatic or he's the Lord. You don't have the option of just saying he's a good man. If these things he claimed for himself and that were said about him are not true, then this is the most diabolical conspiracy that has ever been foisted on mankind. Or otherwise, it is the greatest news you will ever know. There really is no choice in between. But a right understanding of him and who he is requires true knowledge and faith. It means looking, examining, and knowing. But yes, it requires that miraculous work of the Holy Spirit removing the blinders and enabling us to know and to be able to say what we otherwise could not. And so Peter, who has a long way to go and who will yet make profound mistakes, Yet says more than he knows in this instance. I say that guardedly. He knew, but yet he didn't quite get it all, just like the rest of us. John eight fifty six to 59 Speaking to the Jews, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. Think about what extraordinary statement that is. Again... If you're just going to say Jesus was a good teacher, what good teacher would make a statement like this? Oh, by the way, the father of all the faithful who lived 2,000 years ago, he saw the day that I was coming and he rejoiced in it. You know, if you were in a college classroom and a professor said that, you'd start gathering yourself up and you would make sure that that W for withdrawal was placed on your record for that particular class. I'm not wasting my money or my time with this individual, and yet Jesus makes this claim Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. And the Jews said to him, you're not yet 50 years old. And have you seen Abraham? Remember, 2,000 years before, how could this be? Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Ego, a me, the Greek equivalent for that most personal name of God that, Jesus was claiming for Himself. No wonder they picked up stones to stone Him. You see, He didn't give the option of believing some neutral, non-offensive position. I am, and those of us who have come to that realization know that peace that passes understanding because we know it. Bill Iverson knew it. He went home to be with the Lord this past week, 95 years old, son of Dr. Dan Iverson, who started the Shenandoah Presbyterian Church over in Miami in the 1920s, brother of Dan Iverson who flew in World War II on a dauntless aircraft in the South Pacific on the second day of the Battle of Midway. He bore down on one of the largest ships that he saw, a Japanese carrier. He landed that plane on the deck of his own carrier on just half the landing gear because hundreds of bullets had riddled the fuselage and shot it away. And he received the Navy Flying Cross, a Marine. He died in a training accident off the coast of Pensacola before the war was over. I heard about that because Dr. Dan Iverson preached in my own church the year before I was born. And so when Bill Iverson came around, I knew who he was. And I remember sitting with him at a table at Western Carolina University one summer in June during the Presbyterian Evangelistic Fellowship. I'm sorry, it was in August. We were sitting at that table and Bill Iverson was talking to us about presenting the gospel to people when the waitress came up and he stopped what he was saying and looked at her and he said, Hey, what's your name? And she told him. And Bill just out of the blue and said, hey, I want you to think about something and answer for me when you get a chance. Tell me how it is that if somebody is born once, he's going to die twice. But if you're born twice, you'll only die once. The waitress looked at him with a puzzled look and said, okay. And as she would come back to our table, they would continue the conversation. And you know, before it was over. That waitress was praying with him to receive the Lord Jesus. Bill Iverson did that more times than I think any of us could possibly count. He was all about sharing the gospel with others. And now he's entered into the presence of the one that he served in his life. Christ is real. He transforms lives. He changes us. And you know, when we make confession of Jesus as the Christ, the Son of the living God, It's not just a matter of salvation, but it affects all of life. If we're truly trusting him, it matters. It matters whether we're loving our neighbors and love ourselves. It matters that we are people who are honest and of good integrity. Never perfect in this life. But it matters because when we make financial decisions or when we're just deciding whether to travel or whether to not, we find ourselves committing those things to the Lord in prayer. Crying out to him for wisdom. Asking for leading. Because our life belongs to someone who loves us. Who has gone to the cross for us. He has endured the penalty of our own sin for us. And it's not just something we glibly say. Oh yes, he's the son of God. By the way, what are we having for lunch? It's a truth that transforms. So that we seek to live life. As those who are in submission to him because we're a living life of faith, characterized by repentance. Saying that he is the Christ of God means all the difference between life and death and heaven and hell and darkness and light. He is the one who is worthy. But then he turns right around and he charges them and commands them not to tell anyone. Probably because of the popular notion that existed at the time that the Messiah would be a political deliverer. that He would be one who would come and, and politically, physically uh, take the reins as David did in the Old Testament and deliver them from Roman oppression and all manner of other things. And with that, they had all kinds of ideas. And Jesus was not the one that they thought he would be. He was the one that scripture foretold. But ideas and notions about him, apart from Scripture, had grown up. And so Jesus, apparently, not wanting that confusion, to outstrip his real mission, said, Look, you get it, but keep this quiet for now. Because he had a mission to fulfill. And he went on to say... Just in case they needed to be told, and they did, in the event that they confused the fact that he was the Messiah with the popular notion of what the Messiah would actually do, let me tell you what I came to do. The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. I'm going to suffer and die at the hand of the people who ought to know better the ones who are the most skilled and knowledgeable with regard to the things of Scripture, they are the very ones who will be instruments of my death and demise. But what we need to know is that by predicting what would happen, Jesus is demonstrating that he has willingly come to submit to just that. So that ultimately they didn't take his life. He laid it down for our sakes. He gave himself for us. He showed his willingness to endure those things by predicting them. John says in chapter 10, verses 17 and 18, For this reason the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I might take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. He came to destroy the works of the devil. He came. To be an atoning sacrifice for our sins. He came. To go to the cross. We cannot separate. The man from his mission. Who Jesus is. And what he came to do. Are inexorably entwined together. And therefore. We today are able to rejoice. Because he did exactly what he came to do. Just as he said he would do it. And so. It's not just answering the question, who do you say that Jesus is, but what difference does it make in your life? We can say most anything. You know, as I've already alluded to historical figures, I can say that George Washington was the first president of the United States. How can I say that? I didn't vote for him. I never met the man. Sure, his picture's on my currency read about him in history books, but I wasn't there to verify it. I'd have to be an idiot to believe otherwise. We know that. But still, there's a certain amount of faith. And yet, what's he doing for me today, as thankful as I am for you? You see, the Lord Jesus is in this unique position that it's not simply that we give intellectual assent to his true identity. But if we really believe that identity, that He is Christ, the Son of the living God, then that means surrender. It means putting faith in Him. It means knowing that He actually lives now, that He is alive now, just as surely as He was talking to the disciples then. It's just that physically I don't behold Him. It's at the right hand of the Father. But He is with me. I yielded my life and surrendered to Him, and I'm trusting in Him. So it's not just an intellectual exercise. It is an act of faith wherein I believe, I trust, I rest, I rely. And then the ongoing effect of that faith, so that it's not a once and done, but it's an everyday living in the light of his coming, of his teaching, of his death and resurrection, of his ascension, of his interceding for me. All of life suddenly is transformed. That's what it means. An ongoing, continuing event. It's not that He was the Son of God. He is the Son of God. It's not that He was the Christ. He is the Christ. For the believer who has Him in your heart, remember how precious is that gift. And to others of you, I would say to you, He is a gift. And you don't receive Him because you earn Him. You receive Him as a gift the hand of a beggar reaching out to receive a gift from a king. You receive it by faith. You receive him by faith. And affirming also, Lord, I believe and I trust in this beloved one of yours. You know, the impact goes on and on. My uh, my brother-in-law yesterday went to a class at his uh, local church where he's very active. And I'm grateful for Michael. It's He and my wife have been seeking to honor their mom and take care of her and see that she gets the medical attention that she needs and otherwise. But Michael had to attend this class at church on how to de-escalate conflict because he's on the security team. You know, we live in a day when people walk into buildings like this and kill people. And so he's having to learn how to meet people at the door and be prepared to confront them and to de-escalate. And you wonder, why is that? What kind of madness is that? Because we have a real enemy who's out to destroy us. Because what we do really matters. And that enemy is not willing to leave us to do this thing called worship and serving the Lord Jesus. I'm not saying that to try to scare you. I'm saying that to raise a point that I raised in Sunday school. If, like all of the supposed scholars of our day who teach in secular universities, who have a secular mindset, not all the ones that teach, but the ones with a secular mindset, if Jesus is just another historical figure, then why do they go to so much effort to try to dissuade us? To try to change our mind? Why would the enemy come after us, even moving in the hearts of people to perpetrate mass killing, if none of this matters? He matters. The truth matters. We believe in him because it matters. And so I trust and pray that Jesus means all the world to you. One other thing, and then I'm going to close. I'm late, I know. As I was thinking about Bill Iverson, I remember him telling the story about how when they were in Eastern Europe in the days when the Iron Curtain was still raised and they were there witnessing and and they had crossed over a bridge into East Berlin and they were there talking to some folks on the street and whatever German they could muster to try to tell them about Jesus. Uh, these uh, East German guards, army personnel, came up with machine guns started yelling at them. And uh, the man who was with Bill as he was telling the story said, Yeah, I remember that. The guy was pointing the barrel right at me while you were arguing with him. (laughs) And Bill said, Yeah, why did we do that? And then he looked with a sly grin on his face and he said, We did it because it matters. Jesus matters. And I trust and pray you know that. And as we confess him, We have the joy of knowing Him and living for Him. May God bless us all. That not only may we know Him, but we'll be the means by which others know Him too. Father in heaven, we do rejoice. Knowing that there is truth. Knowing that there is a Savior. Knowing that You have revealed Him so gloriously to us. And that He accomplished everything for which He was sent. But Father, please... To sell the clouds of unbelief that tend to well up in all of us. That tendency to be a critic rather than a disciple. To be one of the crowd has just another opinion to offer. Oh, Father, blessed that we might see all that is revealed and come to that one logical conclusion And he is the one. And there can be no other. That we might in repentance and faith yield ourselves to the one who ever lives to make intercession for us. We praise you and we ask all of this in his name, even the name of Jesus. Amen. The oldest creed of Christendom, Jesus Curios. Jesus is Lord. Let's stand together and sing. He is Lord. Emptied of His glory,
1: God became a man To walk on earth in
0: ridicule and shame. A ruler yet a A shepherd yet a lamb, A man of sorrow, tragedy, and pain. Humble. Humble and rejected, Beaten and despised, Upon the cross the Son of God was slain. Just like a lamb to slaughter, A sinless (laughs) sacrifice, But by His death, His laws became our way. Satan's forces, Satan's forces crumbled like a mighty wall. who is the Lord bless you and keep you and cause his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. And may he lift up unto you his countenance and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. And everyone said together, Amen.